Welcome to the Supervisory Development Course Podcast from the University of Minnesota. This episode is adapted from a webinar that aired on December 11th, 2018. The podcast discusses selection and hiring in the context of the University of Minnesota. For more information and resources, visit supervising.umn.edu and explore Module 7 on Selection and Hiring. We'll go ahead and get started by introducing our presenters. I'm Emily Tichich, and I'll be presenting today with Brandon Sullivan. We both represent leadership and talent development. At this point, I'd like to welcome everyone again, and thank you for attending our our webinar today on selection and hiring. To start off today, let's take a look at some of the common pain points hiring managers experience during this process. We'd like you to share your experiences with us, but remember, more importantly, this is a chance to give other participants a glimpse into what other people experience during this process. As I read through these common pain points, please think about your experiences and respond in the chat. You can write the corresponding letter or letters. So the question is, in your selection and hiring experiences, which of the following challenges have you encountered? One, no candidate or too many candidates rose to the top. Two, the process took too long. Three, the interview process wasn't illuminating enough. Four, the new hire had too many training needs. Five, maybe you didn't agree on who to hire. Six, you were under a lot of pressure to hire quickly. Or seven, other. So maybe there's something else in mind that you could also add to the chat. Thank you. I see several chats. Ooh, I see several responses coming in. Wow. One, two, four, five, six, all. Yeah, great. So I hope it's really evident to you now that you are not alone. Uh, this is super interesting. Thanks to everyone for responding. This list was generated by input we've gotten over the years from hiring managers. We think it's pretty reflective of common challenges in the selection and hiring process. There are some other challenges listed here, too. Well, it looks like most of you are saying two and six, one. Yeah, okay, great. This is so interesting. It's so clear here that challenges are an inevitable part of the selection and hiring process because of, I mean, priorities, time constraints, job responsibilities, or any number of other obstacles. I think the fact that you're attending this webinar today demonstrates an interest in we hope, sharing your experiences and also finding some tips for how to minimize the effects of these different obstacles. The selection and hiring process is complex. I think we all know this. It involves many important steps, systems, people. Some of the steps include writing a position description, posting a requisition, getting approvals, arranging a hiring team or a committee, interviewing, of course, finalizing a hire, and there's many, many, many more steps. There's no shortage of useful documents provided by human resources and your department here at the U to help you along the way. But in this webinar, we invite you to take a step back from these important details and to re-examine some underlying principles that can make your process even more effective and hopefully less daunting. Knowing why you need to apply these best practices is crucial for having a positive outcome to any process you undertake. The goal of this webinar today is to guide you through how you can make the best hiring decision. I mean, that's what we all want. Today, we will not cover every step of the process, but instead, we'll focus on three major points. First, analyzing the needs of the position. Second, designing interview questions that are hopefully effective and job relevant. And third, making a hiring decision and what considerations we need to take 
to make an unbiased hiring decision. We'll take a look at some of the challenges that supervisors often face in the process and highlight key questions that every hiring manager should be asking themselves when in the process of selection and hiring. We have lots of ideas and resources to show you in the next 45 minutes. As we do so, I hope you'll be thinking about your own situation and circumstances and how these might spark improvements, no matter how small. We don't expect you to change your selection and hiring approach all at once. That's too much to ask, of course, and maybe it's not necessary. But what we do encourage you is to examine your current approach based on best practices and identify areas for improvement. At this point, we invite you to take a minute to think about what is it you'd like to improve about your own selection and hiring processes? At this point, you can take a sec to write down any thoughts you have. You can also come back to this later. Remember to jot down any questions you have now or throughout the presentation in the Q&A panel so we can address them during today's webinar. That's a very important part of this webinar. We hope as a result of this webinar, you'll also begin to see the selection and hiring process as an opportunity. This would be great. This process is often initially seen as exciting because of its potential to bring in the perfect person for a position, but let's be honest, it quickly slides into feeling burdensome because of the sheer time and effort the process takes. Today, we'd like to help you hold on to the idea that the process is an opportunity because it gives you and your colleagues a chance to do these three things. First, revisit department needs and align the position with department priorities. Second, consider the position needs now, but also in the future. And third, grow the skill set of your department. I mean, those are great opportunities. When done right, your hiring decision will continue to positively impact your department for years. Okay, let's get into the meat of it. As I already mentioned, today we're going to focus on the three key steps of the selection and hiring process. The first step, as we mentioned already, is analyzing the needs of the position. And Brandon, thank you, is going to walk us through this. Thanks, Emily. Well, determining the needs of the position is an important first step for getting a fresh, clear view of the current and future responsibilities of the position and how they connect to departmental priorities. Some important questions to ask at this point include, how will this position help achieve the department or unit goals? In other words, how does the position contribute to the broader priorities of your department or unit? What are the specific responsibilities of the position? What will the position look like three years from now? And you may not know for sure, but it's really important to be thinking about that. What is this going to look like going forward? And finally, what specific skills, knowledge, and abilities are needed? For example, on our team, we support the supervisory development needs of about 6,000 supervisors across five campuses. The only way we can reach an audience of this size is to deliver some of our training online. Now, this is a really big change for us. Just a few years ago, all of our supervisor training was done in person, which meant we could only reach a small portion of our audience. So when a position opened up on our team, instead of simply hiring another consultant to deliver the same old in-person training, we analyzed our needs and decided to reshape the position to focus on developing tools and content we could deliver online to a much larger audience. This meant we needed to look for different skill sets, uh, knowledge, abilities, because we knew the department instructional needs uh, would be growing in the coming years. For any position, it's important to think about why you are looking for a new hire and aligning those needs with the current and future needs of the department. When determining what skills are needed, it's also helpful to think about when they're needed, and this will help you prioritize the skills. 
So to expand on that a little bit, uh, part of analyzing the position needs is getting a clearer picture of the skills you will need the person to bring to the position on day one and which skills they can learn during their first few weeks or months on the job. This was another thing we had to consider on our team for our most recent hire. Designing and delivering online courses requires a set of technical skills in educational technology and the tools and applications we use in doing this work. In addition, this work requires the ability to think broadly about how to design courses and use effective instructional methods. Once we determined how this position would contribute to our team's broader priorities, we knew that the right person for the job needed strong instructional design skills on day one. This was not something we had the time or ability to train. However, we knew that we could train the educational technology skills over the first few months. So although the perfect candidate would have both sets of skills, we were clear about which one was most critical on day one and which could be trained on the job. This approach can also help broaden the candidate pool by identifying which skills can be learned on the job, potentially drawing more candidates with manageable training needs to apply. Remember, helping a new hire to learn on the job requires time and effort. Hiring managers often feel constrained by these things, and it's important to have a realistic plan for how to find the resources to support the learning and development needs of new hires. This doesn't just refer to formal training. Uh, it also refers to informal learning that helps the new hire understand the department and how it works. In doing that, make sure you're not making the error of short-term thinking, because spending six weeks training a new employee now may seem like a lot, but that employee may be with you for many years and be able to contribute to the department in countless ways. So in your department, think about a recent hire or a currently open position. What skills could you identify as needing on day one and which might be learned on the job in the first few weeks or months. One important thing to do when analyzing the position is to identify the minimum required skills needed to meet the goals of the position. In the previous example on our team, at first we wanted to hire someone with instructional design experience. However, we didn't want to limit the candidate pool too much, so we changed our minimum qualifications from master's degree with no experience to bachelor's degree with two years of experience. The change allowed us to widen our candidate pool and look at a more diverse group of candidates that still had the skills we were looking for. We know that many hiring managers desire to increase the candidate pool in order to find the best candidate. Many efforts to reach wider target audiences at the university are invaluable and effective. On a smaller level, have you considered how a job description can reduce or increase your target audience? Analyzing the needs of the position is an important step in any selection and hiring process. If you overlook something or get this part wrong, you may end up hiring someone without the right skills for the position. The good news is that this analysis doesn't have to only come from you. Talk to others in your department, either formally or informally, to get their input on position needs. So to recap, there are four key considerations when analyzing the needs of the position. First. How does the position contribute to the broader priorities of your department or unit? Second, what are the goals and responsibilities of the position, or what does success actually look like? Third, what are the skills, knowledge, and abilities specifically needed to succeed in this role? These are also known as key competencies and include both technical knowledge as well as leadership competencies, which describe how the work gets done. And finally, taking another look at skills, knowledge, and abilities and prioritizing them. What do you need the person to be able to do on day one? What skills are important but can be developed on the job?
there is a guide available on the supervisory development course site for analyzing the position that you can use to guide your next hiring process. Analyzing the position is a crucial step in making a good hiring decision, so don't skip this step. It can be tempting to skip it and just pull out the old job description and move that forward. So please take a moment right now to consider what questions have come up for you as you've been listening. You can submit them in the Q&A panel so we can address them towards the end of the webinar. We really like to hear from you, so please let us know what you're wondering about. Others are probably wondering the same thing. Okay, so at this point in the process, you've determined the position needs, but how do you select a candidate that would meet those needs? There are several ways to go about assessing candidate skills, knowledge, and abilities, and I'm going to turn it back over to Emily to talk about this. Thanks, Brandon. So, right, so depending on the level and the type of job you're hiring for, some tools may be more useful than others. Interviews, of course, are the most common tools for assessing candidates. Not all interviews are equally effective, and we'll talk more about this in a moment. However, there are other commonly used tools. For example, many organizations are interested in assessing how well candidates can think critically, solve complex problems, understand numerical data, and work with ideas and concepts. Many organizations also want to assess how candidates think about and make decisions, how they work with other people, how they manage projects and priorities. There are many validated assessment tools that provide this information. For example, cognitive ability tests, personality assessments, and work simulations, which let you see how candidates perform in real time as they face a realistic challenge. These types of assessments, assessment tools require specialized expertise to administer and interpret but they're used by many organizations because they often provide the most relevant and predictive data, more so than traditional interviews. They're especially helpful in evaluating candidates where you don't have good data about past performance. And they're the best way to evaluate candidates for roles that are different than what they've done in the past. For example, a higher level role with a larger scope. Here at the university, the most commonly used assessment tool is the interview. So, the, key second, the second key consideration of the selection and hiring process is preparing for the interview. Wouldn't it be nice if there were a magic list of questions to make every interview process automatically surface the ideal candidate? We all know there's an art and a science to interviewing. It's a complex process that requires planning and clear communication amongst the interviewers as well as consistency during the interviews. In the next few slides, we're going to look at some common pitfalls in interviewing and ideas for how to avoid them. So, depending on which department you're in, you may already have an effective interview process in place. Even if this is the case for any interview process, it's important to think about several best practices, like choosing interviewers who bring important perspectives, educating your hiring team about the process, and most importantly, planning for the structured interview. All of these steps will make the possibility of hiring the best person more likely. Let's dive deeper into these practices. Interviews are most effective when conducted one-on-one. -on -one. The larger the interview team, the more risk there is of an unstructured process. One interviewer might dominate the questioning, while another might be hesitant to raise critical questions, concerns, or objections to this dominant view. There's also a higher risk of not asking the same questions or all of the questions of a candidate. If you decide to have a team of interviewers or committee, consider selecting interviewers who bring diverse perspectives to the assessment process. For example, an interview with a hiring manager, a future team member, and a key partner would bring in more ins insights into assessing the match between job requirements and candidate competencies. Once you've chosen your team of interviewers, take the time to educate them about the process. One important point 
one important point to educate interviewers on is how to avoid biases. We all bring biases to the interview process, often manifesting in our application of some behavior expectations for some candidate, but not others, depending on their gender, age, school background, ethnicity, parental status, or other factors unrelated to the position. So what do we do? Well, rather than pretending we don't have these biases, I think it's more important to spend time putting steps in place which will help these biases have a minimal impact on the process. So some steps are first, reviewing the position requirements and the selection criteria. Uh, you can remind the team that anyone that meets the minimum qualifications should be considered. And the other step is standardizing the interview process, including which questions to ask, who will ask them, and in what order. So we have a question for you. There are many best practices in interviewing, but one that emerges at the top is using behavioral interview questions. Let's think for a minute about the consequences of using either of the following questions in an interview. What would the difference be? Question one. So again, what's the difference? Question one, how do you handle multiple projects at once? And the next question, what is your approach to handling several projects or details at once? Explain a time you did this and its outcome. Please review the questions, think about them for a minute, and enter your ideas about what the difference is between them into the chat. Good, someone has pointed out the second one looks for evidence-based answer. The second question is more engaging. Yeah, good, okay. So I think it's becoming pretty clear to most of you. Um, the first question gets at the topic of prioritizing and time management. It's great, but it's hypothetical and it doesn't require the candidate to give a concrete example, like many of you pointed out. The second question gets at the same topic, but it requires the candidate to provide a concrete example, including its outcome. Let's take a deeper look into how this works. And by the way, thank you for all the chat insights. So how does this look? As you listen to the following two role plays, think about the information you're getting from each candidate and how you could use it to inform your hiring decision. So here's the first role play. How do you handle multiple projects at once? I always make sure to clearly prioritize my projects. I organize my time so that I focus on the most important work while also being mindful of deadlines. If there's a deadline looming, I'll make sure to get everything done on time. Oh, I also make sure to over communicate because collaboration is so important in this work. I really believe in strong project management skills. I'm good at that. Thank you. And now we have the second role play. What is your approach to handling several projects or details at once? And explain a time that you did this and its outcome. Well, I just finished three projects and it wasn't easy because they were all really important and the deadlines kept shifting around. So at first I put together a big spreadsheet and I broke my work down into smaller pieces with due dates. That approach didn't work so well once we got into the work because some things took longer than we expected. We also realized that our project plan was actually missing a few steps. I'm typically a pretty structured person, but my usual approach didn't work with these projects. So I came up with the idea of a simple document with key stages of each project, the current status, and deadlines. I shared this document with the teams, and we used it to keep each other updated. Most days, I reviewed these documents and checked in with other members of the team. It did take a lot more communication and ongoing adjustments to the plan, but in the end, it worked pretty well. 
So thank you. These two responses may both sound pretty good, but how can you use this information to assess a candidate's ability to be successful in their work? Notice that when talking about time management, the first candidate's answer is vague, hypothetical, and doesn't actually say anything about their past behavior. In fact, it sounds like a canned answer that this person was trained to give. The person says, I organize my time so that I focus on the most important work while also being mindful of deadlines. If there's a deadline looming, I'll make sure to get everything done on time. It sounds great, but we don't know if they've actually done this. As a hiring manager, it's clear that you're able to assess the second candidate's experience objectively using the examples they gave because they gave an actual example of the situation and their behaviors and the impact on their work. So let's listen again to part of their response. So I came up with the idea of a simple document with key stages of each project, the current status and deadlines. I shared this document with the teams and we used it to keep each other updated. Most days I reviewed these documents and checked in with other members of the team. It took a lot more communication and ongoing adjustments to the plan, but in the end it worked pretty well. So yeah, the first candidate may also have strong time management skills, but the response simply isn't concrete. So the hiring manager may have to end up making assumptions about what exactly this would look like in practice, which as we know is not a best practice in hiring. I hope you can clearly see how using behavioral questions can help reduce speculation and subjectivity. Anytime you're making fewer assumptions, this decreases the possibility of bias or a gut reaction creeping into your decisions. At this point, let's, take, let's stop and take a short poll to review behavioral questions. And I think you'll like this one. We have a short poll with four questions. Uh, if you would please read through the questions, which questions are behavioral questions? You can select your answers in the poll and there might be more than one. Great, looks like there's many responses coming in. Thank you. Let's take a look at your ideas. So you maybe you figured this out. I think many of you did. The behavioral questions are A and D. So A says, describe an experience you had mentoring or training someone. How did it go? What did you learn? Great. And D, explain a time when you had to approach someone who didn't agree with you on a work-related topic. What did you do? Why? Yeah, both of these ask about a concrete experience and its impact. There's no room for speculation about a candidate's behavior with these questions. Great. I'm so happy you found it. Question B, what did you think? <laughs> it's super interesting, right? But is it relevant? I mean, this kind of question can be great in an informal conversation to get to know someone, but it has no place in a formal structured interview. And if I asked you, you could probably think of lots of questions like this that might creep into your interviews or your, or your tendency to include them in an interview. So just, again, remember, it might, it's not relevant. Question C, and many of you chose this one, it's definitely a lot, a lot closer to an effective question. But did you notice? It's hypothetical. It leaves too much room for speculation about the candidate's behavior. Better to make it concrete so you can get a clear idea of the candidate's behavior and the impact of their behaviors. Just to point out the word would, what, what would you do? How would you approach? Again, so we're not sure. If you only take one thing away from this webinar, we hope that you can recognize the usefulness of behavioral questions and why they're an effective way of determining a candidate's potential to be successful in the position and also how they help to reduce bias in the process. There's simply no speculating. Let's hear more about choosing interview questions from Brandon, who has some interesting insights to share. 
Thanks, Emily. Uh, so if you're currently interviewing uh, from a list of interview questions, do you know when that list was last reviewed? There are endless types of interview questions that can be useful, but one thing to look for is whether they are asking candidates to talk about a hypothetical situation or real experience. Now, for me, before coming to the university, I spent much of my career as a selection assessment consultant. So I helped uh, organizations assess candidates for leadership roles using interviews and a whole range of other tools. When people heard what I did for a living, they often asked me, what's the best interview question, right? They wanted to know the, the trick, the magic question. Um, they were usually pretty disappointed to hear there aren't magical questions. It's really more about the answers and getting the right, uh, right answers to the questions. The key is making sure that the candidates answer the questions in a way that describes specific situations that are similar to the ones they'll face in the role you're hiring for. They explain how they handled those situations specifically. So what did they do? And what was the outcome or impact of the behavior? A good question is important. There are a lot of bad ones, and it's important to have good questions. But the magic is getting information about the situation, the behaviors, and the impact of the outcome. And this requires asking good follow-up questions to give the candidate the opportunity to share all of this information. It's not just about good questions and follow-ups. The candidate also has to answer the questions in a way that provides the information you need to assess their skills, and that's their job. So there is another side to this coin, and that is you may have a candidate who doesn't answer the questions you're asking. Some red flags to watch out for during the interview are when a candidate doesn't listen to your questions, doesn't seem to understand the position they're applying for and isn't interested in learning more. I've seen that many times, um, and I'm sure many of you have. Um, and when they, they don't show awareness of their own development needs or what they need to work on to improve. Uh, and this happens a lot, especially when people are prepared to give canned answers. Remember that I'm a perfectionist answer as what's your biggest weakness, right? Uh, so when these kinds of things happen, your role as the interviewer is to do your best to get them back on track by clarifying what you're asking and following up when an answer doesn't give you the information that you need. To recap, the interview process requires consideration of three important steps. First, choosing interviewers who bring important perspectives. Second, educating your hiring team about the process. This is really important and it's easy to skip over this step. Uh, and most importantly, planning for a structured interview. To help you with this, the Supervisory Development Course website has an interview guide that outlines the purpose of behavioral questions and the connection between using them and reducing bias in the selection and hiring process. In this guide, you'll find a list of the University of Minnesota behavioral competencies and questions connected to each competency. This guide is designed to work at the individual contributor level, but it can be adapted for management roles as well. On the Supervisory Development Course site, you can also find a quick guide to preparing for an interview that is designed to walk you through these important steps and help when considering your way forward through the process. So at this point, we've talked about two key considerations of the selection and hiring process. I hope you have lots of questions coming up about these topics. Uh, maybe you need some clarification or are wondering how it applies to a specific set of circumstances. Please submit these questions. Uh, in the meantime, uh, let's switch gears and get past the interview. Now it's time uh, to make that final hiring decision. In your hiring experiences, have you ever at any point said, I think they'd be a good fit here? Now be honest, if you're watching in a room full of people, you don't have to raise your hand or anything. But you should know that if you're raising your hand in your mind 
or in reality, you are definitely not alone. Who doesn't want a good fit for their department? But let's unpack this a little bit. What does fit mean exactly? Well, everyone uses the word a bit differently. Often we feel like someone would be a good or, good or bad fit based on our gut reactions. Unfortunately, our gut reactions are often based more on how comfortable we feel about a candidate, which can be more about how similar or different they are to us or about how well we think they would get along with other people in the department or team. We often feel uncomfortable when someone is different from us, and if we're not careful, this discomfort can turn into a gut feeling that someone is not a good fit for a position. For example, you may find yourself thinking, well, they have the skills we need, but I just don't think they would get along with the people here. Their style just isn't a good fit, or I have a hard time picturing them in our department, or I really need another me. So what is a good fit? Well, a fit between the needs of the position and the skills, knowledge, and abilities of the candidate is the fit you're looking for. And sometimes this kind of fit means hiring someone who makes us a bit uncomfortable or who will challenge us to think differently because that's what we need. So next time you interview, I would encourage you to allow yourself to acknowledge uh, your feeling about a candidate's fit, but also to take a step back and unpack that judgment and make sure it's not a result of bias toward or against a candidate but rather a reflection of how their skills and experience would contribute to the needs of the position based on concrete examples of their work. Using behavioral questions can get at this information and minimize bias as you assess candidates. But one way to do all of this is to really start with data. Go back to the job analysis. Go back to what you need in the role. Revisit the goals, responsibilities, and expectations of the position. What are the key responsibilities? Are they all weighted equally? Usually they're not. Review your interview notes. Did the candidates answer the questions in a way that allowed you to assess their actions and the outcomes in a particular situation? Then think about the candidate's skill set. For each candidate, consider how did their answers to interview questions demonstrate or lack, not demonstrate, the skills, knowledge, and abilities they need for the position? What would be their immediate needs for coaching and development? What are the position must-haves on day one? What level of competency is needed? What is the impact of reaching mastery with time versus early on? Do, others, do you or others in your department have the time, energy, and resources to help the candidate learn and develop if you hired them? How motivated are they to learn new things, and have they demonstrated persistence when faced with challenges in the past? Did they demonstrate the ability to learn quickly? If a candidate is motivated to learn and has a track record of learning quickly and being persistent, they will be easier to train and they will work hard to learn whatever they need to learn to be effective in the role. Next, have a discussion with your hiring team. Once all candidates are interviewed, make time to review your interview notes and have an open discussion about their skills, knowledge, and abilities, development needs, and potential. Set expectations that everyone needs to contribute to this to the discussion. Now, this is a point when hiring decisions often derail. When hiring managers are under time pressure or there is strong pressure for consensus, team members may not raise critical questions, concerns, or objections because they don't want to be the one to hold things up or they assume they're the only one with a particular concern. To avoid this and keep the hiring decision on track, it's important to actively seek input from all members of the team. Have team members assess candidates individually and write down their thoughts before having a group discussion. 
then have team member, each team member share their views before opening up to a full group discussion. Encourage and listen carefully to anyone playing the role of devil's advocate or contrarian, someone who will ask questions or concerns that challenge the common thinking within the group. This ensures that you'll hear the tough questions, which help the team stay focused on accurate candidate assessment. And finally, avoid expressing your opinion as the leader until other views have been voiced. So you've done a lot of work up to this point to select candidates objectively, standardize the interview process to minimize the effect of bias on your decisions. Now remember, biases can creep in at this point in the process too. So to avoid some of the most common biases, there are some things you can do. Discuss candidates' potential performance based on evidence from the interview, not assumptions or gut feelings about their behaviors. Be consistent. Don't insist on some characteristics like likability or modesty, humility, um, executive presence, want to hear a lot. Don't insist on that from some candidates and not others. Don't count gaps in a resume against a candidate without a really good reason for doing that. Don't make assumptions about what candidates need based on information you have about them that's not relevant to the job. That's really about making assumptions about kind of what they may or may not need without asking them or knowing. Don't fall into what's called the affinity bias, preferring someone because you went to the same college or they remind you of someone you know and like. Okay, so now we're ready to talk about actually making the decision. I'll turn it back over to Emily to dive into that. Yeah, thanks, Brandon. So now it's time to make a hiring decision. Great. The ideal situation would be, of course, that you have one candidate that rises to the top and everyone involved agrees on making them an offer. That sounds so nice and easy. Keep in mind, though, if this happens, make sure it isn't due to time pressure or pressure for consensus. As Brandon mentioned earlier, so-called consensus here might be an example of a groupthink. Another point is that is there's an important distinction between listening to all viewpoints and reaching consensus. Ideally, everyone involved in the process will, will reach consensus about a final candidate. But remember, that's not an exact goal. Is a consensus really possible if people have different opinions? As a hiring manager, what you are most responsible for is listening to and valuing everyone's viewpoints. But ultimately, no, you may not reach consensus. You'll still have to make a final decision, though. This reality underscores the importance of having, a, having done a clear, thorough job analysis and executed a structured interview that was consistent among candidates. Of course, another scenario is that no candidate rises to the top. This situation requires a careful review of the job posting and interview data to reconsider current candidates' qualifications. You may also need to go back to the job requirements and reevaluate them to see how they could be adjusted to widen the candidate pool. One of the main challenges hiring managers face is scenario three, which is having to choose between two or more possibly great candidates. That's when you see the connection between this step and a thorough job analysis and implementing interview best practices. Revisiting the job analysis at this point is a great way to remind yourself of your department needs and review which candidate best meets them. Using your notes from the behavioral interview questions can help you identify concrete behaviors the candidates demonstrate and how these would contribute to strengthening your department. That'd be great. Again, it's all about having a clear idea of what the department needs are and concrete examples of what the candidates would bring to the position. When you revisit the job analysis, ask yourself, does the new hire have to be a rock star on day one? Or is it okay if they're is it is it okay if they're just okay at the role for now? 
This will help you figure out what skills you need the new hire to have on day one and which skills are desirable but can be trained. For example, if you have two great final candidates that both have training needs, which of their needs are most easily trained? Does your unit or department have the time and effort to dedicate to make sure the training can happen in a timely manner? So we had this recently uh, happen on our team, and I've been giving you uh, some example, an example about that. Um, and, and so I'll explain kind of how we approach this. So um, after doing a lot of interviews, we narrowed it down to a few top candidates. It wasn't an easy decision, but it was helpful to remind ourselves that this position needs to help our team get better at instructional design. This was the key thing. In other words, we knew it was critical that the person we hire knows how to get us, help us get better at designing courses. When we kept this in mind and discussed the final candidates, one in particular stood out as the strongest in this area. This candidate would need to learn more about some other pieces of the job related to things like educational technology, but they demonstrated that they could learn quickly in their previous positions. While we had other strong candidates, they exhibited a little bit less adaptability for learning on the job. The ability uh, and motivation to adapt and learn quickly is a key indicator of potential to take on bigger and more challenging roles and projects. For more information about potential and performance and a related concept called readiness, uh, check out the video and quick guide to assessing performance, potential, and readiness, which is in module one of the supervisory development course site. It can be very helpful to talk through your final decision with a trusted colleague outside of the hiring team. Encourage your colleague to challenge your ideas to help you make your, to help you with your decision-making process. You can let them know what you're thinking and see if it makes sense to them. Remember, all of your work has been building up to this decision. There is usually a lot of pressure to make a quick decision, but any hiring decision is worth an extra moment to gain clarity. You don't want to keep candidates waiting, but you also don't want to gloss over important questions, concerns, or doubts without thoughtfully considering them. Finally, throughout the process, it is important to follow up. Communicate clearly with all candidates in a timely manner. Make sure they hear back from you after an interview or application. Remember that as a hiring manager, you are an ambassador at the University of Minnesota, and your communication or lack thereof is going to leave an impression on the candidate regardless of whether they were selected. And keep in mind, one of these candidates is probably going to be one of your colleagues soon, and their engagement will be shaped by how they are treated during the hiring and selection process. It's a good idea to treat all candidates as though they will be your colleagues one day. Finally, the hiring decision is not the end of the story. To set your new hire up for success, create an onboarding plan to help your new hire get off to a successful start. We have other resources on the uh, supervisory development course site specifically for onboarding. So we were going through this content today rather quickly, and as a reminder, this webinar is really only meant to whet your appetites. To learn more, you'll want to explore the supervisory development website, like Brandon mentioned, at supervising.umn.edu. We also have quick guides that you can download for your reference. Check out Module 7. Selection and Hiring. Specifically, take a look at the Making a Hiring Decision quick guide and video, which will walk through some important steps of how to overcome these challenges. In addition, for more information about dealing with dissenting opinions and group think and team dynamics, take a look at our quick guide to clear decision-making process, also found on the Supervisory Development course site. At this point in our webinar, with the time we have left, it's time to apply some of these consideration, key considerations and actions. 
We're going to present an interactive scenario and hope that it both answers and raises questions about this process for you. Remember to jot down or submit your questions at any point. We'll have time for Q&A after the scenario. All right, so let's set the scene. Here we have Stacy, and Stacy is a manager who's hiring for a position in her department as a student advisor. She and her team have narrowed the candidate pool down to two strong finalists, Mona, who's an internal candidate, and Julia, who's an external candidate. Stacy's hiring team consists of Allison, who's a team member, Stacy's direct report, we have Ken, who's Stacy's peer, Omar, who is also a team member in Stacy's direct report, and Isabel, who is Stacy's boss. So here's our premise and our first poll. Our premise is that Stacy has two qualified final candidates. That's awesome, right? Stacy and her boss have interviewed them, and both candidates have the potential to be successful in the position, and they don't have any critical gaps. Both bring different skills and expertise. Mona has quite a bit of relevant technical experience, while Julia exhibits strong collaborative skills. At this point, there's no clear final choice. Remember, this is for a student advising position. Question for you. What would you do if you were Stacy? Would you A, hire Mona? B, hire Julia? C, just take a vote? D, maybe repost the position? Or E, an other, and you could indicate in the chat what your other action would be. So I'll give you a minute to answer the poll question. Thank you. Great, I see take a vote. Ah, group think, good. Re-interview the final candidates. Yep, another interview, okay. These are great suggestions. Take a vote, bring team together. Oh, yes, weigh the pros and cons of the KSAs, awesome. Speak with, oh wow, wow, you guys have great ideas. If you selected A or B, I'm not surprised. Who doesn't want to make a decision quickly? After all, both candidates are great, right? If you chose D, I would ask you, how would you repost the position in a way to get a different outcome? Choice C, taking a vote, yeah, it looks pretty popular, and it sounds very democratic, right? Very, very, very good. But remember, as the hiring manager, you don't necessarily need consensus. It's more important to think about the job needs and to listen to everyone's viewpoints. So if you were someone who said, you know, go back and look at the KSAs, yeah, I'm with you. It's at this point that you need to take a step back to consider what you know about the job needs. Let's listen to Stacy and her boss talk through their ideas about the candidates. So Julia is able to help us design a better way to process student records. That sounds great. I'm a little worried about her technical skills, though, since it seems our best advisors have pretty advanced technical expertise. Yeah, I know. Um, I'm wondering if bringing in someone who has stronger collaborative skills would help us streamline some processes. This would be awesome because it would help us handle the large number of students that we work with without getting overburdened. What about her, her experience working with our database? Well, I don't think she has much, but she worked with a similar system before, and I think there's time to get her up to speed. Well, Mona has more experience with our database, and she's already worked here at the U. Yeah, right. Um, I just don't know that experience is as important on day one, since with some time she could be trained in, and once we train her in, she could help streamline the workflow for our processes and help train people to work in a new way. Would you have time to train her? Uh, I think so, and John could help train her too. I'm just hesitant to hire someone external that doesn't have the technical experience they need for day one. I know what you mean. I just think Julia brings more skills that are harder to train in, like knowing how to tackle organizational needs. 
I like both candidates. Let's wait to hear from the team after they finish the second round of interviews tomorrow. So from this conversation, we can see that Stacy and Isabel, her boss, are touching on many relevant, important considerations in their process. One of the key considerations that you just heard, and there's four listed here, analyzing the job needs, identifying how the position fits into overall goals, identifying day one skills versus training needs, and do we have the time to train them in? And then, of course, short versus long-term value. So if you identified the fact that all of them were here in this conversation, I totally agree with you. This actually reflects a very thoughtful approach to their process. So let's see what happens next. After the second round of interviews, the whole team meets to discuss a final decision. On the way to this meeting, Allison and Omar have a short conversation in the hallway. I hope we can make an offer soon. We really need someone in the position as soon as possible. Well, which candidate do you think is the best choice? I think Ma Mona is an obvious choice. She'd get along great with our group. So conversations like this are not very uncommon. Have you ever had a conversation like this about a candidate? I think most of us have. I know I have. It's a natural tendency to discuss candidates outside of formal meetings. Do you see any problems with this? If so, or if not, please enter your ideas into the chat. We'd love to hear what you think. I will see what's here so far. And yeah, I think you guys are totally nailing it. There's one person influencing another. There's, you know, they're feeling rushed. The other committee members or team members aren't here. and They're not able to weigh in. And also, this conversation isn't driven by data. It's driven by personality and also feeling rushed. So thank you for, thank you for your input. Let's move on to the next meeting, and this is the meeting where everybody's there. In the next meeting, the group discusses the two candidates and they try to make a final decision. I think we should hire Mona. I agree, I think she'll be a great fit with the team. Yeah, how so? She seems to be uh, easy to talk to and she has a ton of technical knowledge. She's worked with our database, which is a total plus. Yeah, she seems like a shoe-in. Let's make an offer soon. Well, great. I'm glad you both agree. It would be great to get this wrapped up soon. Omar, what do you think? Yeah, sure. So what is about to happen here? <laughs> we have a poll for you. What's about to happen here? A, are they going to hire Mona without everyone's input? Or B, make a subjective decision? Or C, use time constraints to rush a decision? Or D, all of the above? And this is not a trick question. What do you think? Right. If you said A, I agree with you, or B, or C, or D, I totally agree with you. It's all of the above. So have you had an experience like this before? I mean, again, as a hiring manager, it's your responsibility to get past the need for consensus. Most of the team members are engaged and enthusiastic in this discussion, which feels like agreement. That's great. But what's missing? First, we notice not everyone is being heard. What if Omar has a valuable insight into a candidate? Is it worth pushing through a decision and overlooking a factor that might come back to create job-related challenges later? So what should Stacy do at this point? It's common for interview team members to want to reach consensus, and to do that, they may not express their opinions openly, especially if they're not the same as other team members. Stacy needs to prioritize hearing from all people over the time pressure that she feels to make a decision. Let's listen to her handle this differently. Great. I'm glad you both agree. It would be great to get this wrapped up soon. Omar, what do you think? Yeah, sure. Well, Omar, what do you really think? If everyone is in agreement, then the decision is fine with me. 
Well, your opinion is valuable. I asked you to be on this team for a reason. Well, I see why the team is leaning towards Mona. I agree that she seems to have a great personality and also brings a lot of technical knowledge. However, I think Julia has other skills that our department would benefit from. I like the way she talked about how she approached a recent project at work and tried to bring people along in the process. I think it's really important to have this approach because we constantly try to improve our processes and face resistance from people who don't want to learn a new process or are set in their ways. Her approach exhibits a clear willingness to be open to new ways of doing things and standing by her decisions, even if they are not initially well received by others. We to go Stacy and Omar. After this conversation, she decides not to rush and takes the team back to the job description to review the concrete needs. She realizes both technical skills and collaborative skills are important to the position. Which is easier to train a candidate in, technical or collaborative skills? The team goes back to their notes to see if they missed anything. Looking back at their notes from the interview, Stacy points out that Julia has more evidence of collaboration, which is a much harder skill to train. As a result of the discussion, Stacy decides to hire Julia. So, that was just a scenario. We know that in real life, making a hiring decision is even more complex, of course, as many other variables come into play. Like, what if one of the hiring team members knows a candidate? What if one of the candidates had worked in the department before? Regardless of the variables, remember to apply the best practices no matter what conditions arise. So, what's the cost of hiring the wrong person? This is important. When hiring, don't be tempted to rush the final decision. Poor performance and an inability to be successful in the position are the main risks of a rushed hiring decision. But other results can include unwanted turnover, disengagement, decreased morale among employees, or unanticipated coaching needs. In short, the cost of a bad hiring decision can be enormous and will become the gift that keeps on giving for as long as the person struggles in their role. Thank you for your attention today. Uh, we do want to mention that any questions that you submit, we will post answers to on the Q&A section of this module at supervising.umn.edu. Thanks again, everyone. We hope you found this information today useful and relevant to your selection and hiring process and that you hopefully had one meaningful takeaway. And we look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Supervisory Development Course podcast. Please explore the selection and hiring resources on the supervising.umn.edu site. There, you'll find videos, guides, and more to help you analyze position needs, prepare for interviews, and make a hiring decision. The Supervisory Development Course podcast is created by Leadership and Talent Development within the Office of Human Resources at the University of Minnesota. If you have questions or would like to reach out, please email us at ltd.umn.edu. At